Matilda by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley Chapter 5 Nearly a year had passed since my father's return, and the seasons had almost finished their round. It was now the end of May. The woods were clothed in their freshest verdure, and the sweet smell of the new-mown grass was in the fields. I thought that the balmy air and the lovely face of nature might aid me in inspiring him with mild sensations, and give him gentle feelings of peace and love preparatory to the confidence I determined to win from him. I chose, therefore, the evening of one of these days for my attempt. I invited him to walk with me, and led him to a neighbouring wood of beech-trees, whose light shade shielded us from the slant and dazzling beams of the descending sun. After walking for some time in silence, I seated myself with him on a mossy hillock. It is strange, but even now I seem to see the spot, the slim and smooth trunks were many of them wound round by ivy, whose shining leaves of the darkest green contrasted with the white bark and the light leaves of the young sprouts of beech that grew from their parent trunks. The short grass was mingled with moss, and was partly covered by the dead leaves of the last autumn that, driven by the winds, had here and there collected in little hillocks. There were a few moss-grown stumps about. The leaves were gently moved by the breeze, and through their green canopy you could see the bright blue sky. As evening came on, the distant trunks were reddened by the sun, and the wind died entirely away, while a few birds flew past us to their evening rest. Well, it was here we sat together, and when you hear all that passed, all that of terrible tore our souls even in this placid spot, which, but for strange passions, might have been a paradise to us. You will not wonder that I remember it, as I looked on it that its calm might give me calm, and inspire me not only with courage, but with persuasive words. I saw all these things, and in a vacant manner noted them in my mind, while I endeavoured to arrange my thoughts in fitting order for my attempt. My heart beat fast, as I worked myself up to speak to him, for I was determined not to be repulsed, but I trembled to imagine what effect my words might have on him. At length, with much hesitation, I began. Your kindness to me, my dearest father, and the affection, the excessive affection, that you had for me when you first returned, will, I hope, excuse me in your eyes that I dare speak to you, although with the tender affection of a daughter, yet also with the freedom of a friend and equal. But pardon me, I entreat you, and listen to me, do not turn away from me, do not be impatient. You may easily intimidate me into silence, but my heart is bursting, nor can I willingly consent to endure for one moment longer the agony of uncertitude which for the last four months has been my portion. Listen to me, dearest friend, and permit me to gain your confidence. Are the happy days of mutual love which have passed, to be to me as a dream, never to return? Alas! You have a secret grief that destroys us both, but you must permit me to win this secret from you. Tell me, can I do nothing? 
you well know that on the whole earth there is no sacrifice that I would not make, no labour that I would not undergo, with the mere hope that I might bring you ease. But if no endeavour on my part can contribute to your happiness, let me at least know your sorrow, and surely my earnest love and deep sympathy must soothe your despair. I fear that I speak in a constrained manner. My heart is overflowing with the ardent desire I have of bringing calm once more to your looks and thoughts. But I fear to aggravate your grief, or to raise that in you which is death to me, anger and distaste. Do not then continue to fix your eyes on the earth. Raise them on me, for I can read your soul in them. Speak to me, and pardon my presumption. Alas! I am a most unhappy creature. I was breathless with emotion, and I paused, fixing my earnest eyes on my father, after I had dashed away the intrusive tears that dimmed them. He did not raise his, but after a short silence he replied to me in a low voice, You are indeed presumptuous, Matilda, presumptuous and very rash. In the heart of one like me there are secret thoughts working, and secret tortures which you ought not to seek to discover. I cannot tell you how it adds to my grief to know that I am the cause of uneasiness to you, but this will pass away, and I hope that soon we shall be as we were a few months ago. Restrain your impatience, or you may mar what you attempt to alleviate. Do not again speak to me in this strain, but wait in submissive patience the event of what is passing around you. Oh, yes, I passionately replied. I will be very patient. I will not be rash or presumptuous. I will see the agonies and tears and despair of my father, my only friend, my hope, my shelter. I will see it all with folded arms and downcast eyes. You do not treat me with candour. It is not true what you say. This will not soon pass away. It will last for ever if you deign not to speak to me, to admit my consolations. Dearest, dearest father, pity me and pardon me. I entreat you, do not drive me to despair. Indeed, I must not be repulsed. There is one thing that, which, although it may torture me to know, yet that you must tell me. I demand, and most solemnly I demand, if in any way I am the cause of your unhappiness. Do you not see my tears which I in vain strive against? You hear unmoved my voice broken by sobs. Feel how my hand trembles. My whole heart is in the words I speak. And you must not endeavour to silence me by mere words barren of meaning. The agony of my doubt hurries me on, and you must reply. I beseech you, by your former love for me, now lost, I adjure you to answer that one question. Am I the cause of your grief? He raised his eyes from the ground, but still turning them away from me, said, Besought by that plea, I will answer your rash question. Yes, you are the sole, the agonizing cause of all I suffer, of all I must suffer until I die. Now beware, be silent, do not urge me to your destruction. I am struck by the storm, rooted up, laid waste. 
but you can stand against it. You are young, and your passions are at peace. One word might I speak, and then you would be implicated in my destruction. Yet that word is hovering on my lips. Oh, there is a fearful chasm, but I adjure you to beware. Ah, dearest friend, I cried, do not fear. Speak that word, it will bring peace, not death. If there is a chasm, our mutual love will give us wings to pass it, and we shall find flowers, and verdure, and delight on the other side." I threw myself at his feet, and took his hand. Yes, speak, and we shall be happy. There will no longer be doubt, no dreadful uncertainty. Trust me, my affection will soothe your sorrow. Speak that word, and all danger will be past and we shall love each other as before, and for ever." He snatched his hand from me, and rose in violent disorder. "'What do you mean? You know not what you mean. Why do you bring me out, and torture me, and tempt me, and kill me? Much happier would it be for you, and for me, if in your frantic curiosity you tore my heart from my breast, and tried to read its secrets in it, as its life's blood was dropping from it. Thus you may console me by reducing me to nothing. But your words I cannot bear. Soon they will make me mad, quite mad, and then I shall utter strange words, and you will believe them, and we shall both be lost for ever. I tell you, I am on the very verge of insanity. Why, cruel girl, do you drive me on? You will repent, and I shall die. When I repeat his words, I wonder at my pertinacious folly. I hardly know what feelings resistlessly impelled me. I believe it was that, coming out with a determination not to be repulsed, I went right forward to my object, without well weighing his replies. I was led by passion, and drew him with frantic heedlessness into the abyss that he so fearfully avoided. I replied to his terrific words. You fill me with a fright, it is true, dearest father, but you only confirm my resolution to put an end to this state of doubt. I will not be put off thus. Do you think I can live thus fearfully from day to day, the sword in my bosom yet kept from its mortal wound by a hair, a word? I demand that dreadful word, though it be as a flash of lightning to destroy me. Speak it. Alas! Alas! What am I become? But a few months have elapsed since I believed that I was all the world to you, and that there was no happiness or grief for you on earth unshared by your Matilda, your child. That happy time is no longer, and what I most dreaded in this world is come upon me. In the despair of my heart I see what you cannot conceal. You no longer love me. I adjure you, my father, has not an unnatural passion seized upon your heart? Am I not the most miserable worm that crawls? Do I not embrace your knees, and you most cruelly repulse me? I know it. I see it. You hate me." I was transported by violent emotion, and rising from his feet, at which I had thrown myself, I leant against a tree, wildly raising my eyes to heaven. He began to answer with violence, "'Yes, yes, I hate you. You are my bane, my poison, my disgust. 
oh, no! And then his manner changed, and fixing his eyes on me with an expression that convulsed every nerve and member of my frame. You are none of all of these. You are my light, my only one, my life. My daughter, I love you. The last words died away in a hoarse whisper, but I heard them and sunk on the ground, covering my face and almost dead with excess of sickness and fear. A cold perspiration covered my forehead, and I shivered in every limb, but he continued, clasping his hands with a frantic gesture. Now I have dashed from the top of the rock to the bottom. Now I have precipitated myself down the fearful chasm. The danger is over. She is alive. Oh, Matilda, lift up those dear eyes in the light of which I live. Let me hear the sweet tones of your beloved voice in peace and calm. Monster as I am, you are still, as you ever were, lovely, beautiful beyond expression. What I have become since this last moment I know not. Perhaps I am changed in Mien as the fallen angel. I do not believe I am, for I have surely a new soul within me, and my blood riots through my veins. I am burnt up with fever. But these are precious moments. Devil as I am become, yet that is my Matilda before me, whom I love as one never before was loved. And she knows it now. She listens to these words which I thought, fool as I was, would blast her to death. Come, come, the worst is past. No more grief, tears, or despair. Were not those the words you uttered? We have leapt the chasm I told you of, and now, mark me, Matilda, we are to find flowers, and verdure, and delight, or is it hell, and fire, and tortures? O oh, beloved one, I am borne away, I can no longer sustain myself, surely this is death that is coming. Let me lay my head near your heart, let me die in your arms. He sunk to the earth, fainting, while I, nearly as lifeless, gazed on him in despair. Yes, it was despair I felt. For the first time that phantom seized me, the first and only time, for it has never since left me. After the first moments of speechless agony, I felt her fangs on my heart. I tore my hair. I raved aloud. At one moment in pity for his sufferings I would have clasped my father in my arms. Then, starting back with horror, I spurned him with my foot. I felt as if stung by a serpent, as if scourged by a whip of scorpions that drove me. Ah! Whither! Whither! Well, this could not last. One idea rushed on my mind. Never. Never may I speak to him again. As this terrible conviction came upon me, it melted my soul to tenderness and love. I gazed on him as to take my last farewell. He lay insensible, his eyes closed, his cheeks deathly pale. Above, the leaves of the birch wood cast a flickering shadow on his face, 
and waved in mournful melody over him. I saw all these things, and said, Ay, this is his grave. And then I wept aloud, and raised my eyes to heaven to entreat for a respite to my despair, and an alleviation for his unnatural suffering. The tears that gushed in a warm and healing stream from my eyes relieved the burden that oppressed my heart almost to madness. I wept for a long time, until I saw him about to revive, when horror and misery again recurred, and the tide of my sensations rolled back to their former channel. With a terror I could not restrain, I sprung up and fled with winged speed along the paths of the wood and across the fields, until, nearly dead, I reached our house, and, just ordering the servants to seek my father at the spot I indicated, I shut myself up in my own room. End of chapter 5